started, please open your Bibles to Ezekiel 33 and verse 10. Now, we didn't get very far last time because of a basic overall review of, of prophecy. And uh, so before we begin tonight, let's just take a moment for prayer. Uh, we, we need to be in prayer all the time, really. Pray without ceasing is what it says, but uh, we, we're living in an exciting time, in case you haven't noticed. Uh, <clears throat> it's a... Uh, Quite an interesting time. So before we begin, let us present ourselves in front of the Lord because he's the real teacher. Uh, the, the Lord himself is the spirit of prophecy, and that's what we want is a better picture of who he is by the time we get done. So just take this moment, get ourselves ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day, for your goodness and grace. Thank you for the privilege of living in this time in which we're living. Father, we're watching everything come together. Uh, It's becoming clearer every day. And we thank you for that. It is indeed uh, one of the most exciting times in all of history. So, Father, I pray that as we open up your word, we'll be able to understand your word and make the appropriate applications and not get... uh, not get led astray by just some mistakes. So, Father, I pray that you'll be with us tonight, that you'll guide the words. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are, um, just a couple of things. We were kind of visited about it before class outside. When you're studying prophecy, there's, there, there's a thing called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. And so it's a science because there's certain rules applied to it. And that means that you're going to take, try to take verses in context. You're going to pay attention to what's come before, to what's come after. You're going to pay attention to what the, when the book was written, who wrote the book, where it was written from. You're going to try to put together just some basic things that you would do really with any piece of historical literature. And then you have to pay attention to the grammatical principles, the grammatical specifics that are found there. And we've we found some interesting things over the year about the mark of the beast and all kinds of stuff that had to do with what does the grammar say that sometimes translators and translations leave it out and they just don't don't pick it up. But one of the things about prophecy, first thing you have to do is look and ask, is it a prophecy? Because there are parts of the Bible that we have the historical books, which goes from Genesis through Joshua, and actually would en- encompass Ruth, First, Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. But those are historical books. And then we have the poetry, which is, um, you know, this the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. We have the prophecy that's found there, and then we have the major and minor prophets. So <clears throat> we have to see well, what. How is this put together? How did the Holy Spirit inspire this? And in what kind is called a genre? Is it a historical writing? Is it a prophetical writing? What What is it? It's not frequently you'll find within a book, you'll find several different things that's kind of mixed because you'll find the poets, as the, as it's, or the prophets, as they're speaking, it's done in a poetic format. So you, you study things like that and and pay attention to what it's got to say. And once you determine if it's a prophecy. Now just because it's in Deuteronomy doesn't mean it's not a prophecy. Or just because it's in Isaiah doesn't mean that it is a prophecy. There are some things that are historical. 
And so with that comes a requirement to have a knowledge of ancient history. Not <clears throat> not just a cursory knowledge. You need a little bit of uh, study on what really happened when, what was the sequence of events. That's why we have charts on the back. What were the ten major events of, of ancient history? What was the dates? How do we put them on there like the fall, the flood, Tower of Babel, <coughs> Abraham, and we start plugging in things inside of that, and that's how we develop a context. But when you determine something is a prophecy, you have to ask, um, has it been fulfilled or not? Because if it's un- been fulfilled, God's under no obligation to fulfill it again. Okay, It's just, it's not... You know, it may have been given in Isaiah for the northern kingdom, which he was a prophet to the northern kingdom, and a lot of the prophecies may have been fulfilled. So when you read something that is prophetic, you have to determine, was it fulfilled historically already? Now, if it's not fulfilled, it will be. And those are the ones that we're interested in. That's why that book back there says the unfulfilled, book of Revelation, unfulfilled prophecies of the scripture. Because when you find it in the book of Revelation, because the whole book is a prophecy by declaration, then it, and it's referring back to over 300 places in the Old Testament, then it is telling us that we've got to go back and take a look at those historical events and extract that into Revelation. These are unfulfilled prophecies. And is the Lord going to fulfill them or not? Yeah. Oftentimes in Revelation, he'll give you just a few sentences and you'll have chapters on it in the major and minor prophets. So they, you have to pay attention. There's another thing called um, a partially fulfilled prophecy. And out of that comes the principle of double reference. Where there's a prophecy about something that is going to happen. It's a detailed prophecy, but only some of the details were fulfilled. Well, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle shall pass till all shall be fulfilled. That means that God is going to bring back into existence a set of circumstances through which he can fulfill every single part of it. That's the principle of double reference. Some people mistakenly call it the law of double reference and think every prophecy has got a double reference to a historical event in the past and a future event, future from us. But if it's been completely fulfilled, it does not need to be fulfilled again. So prophecy is, is a detailed study. It's an important study. And that's part of what we're looking at here because we've been looking at <coughs> uh, the Gog-Magog rebellion because that's a big deal right now. Are we getting ready to have the... It's not the rebellion. Are we getting ready to have this Gog-Magog battle? And <coughs> from chapters 33 to 30. 9, 38 and 39 is actually the two major chapters. People are trying to put that in different parts of the uh, church age, and I, I, I question that, and I want to show you why. Now, is this stuff going on right now? Is it all leading up to Armageddon? Not for at least seven years, the way I understand it. Armageddon, first of all, is a war. It's not just one battle. It is a war, called a polemos in the Greek, and that means that it's a war. But it has a final culminating battle, as a lot of wars do. And that's frequently what people get confused. Well, Armageddon's coming. Well, it is coming. But is it next week? No. It's at least, 
it's at least a rapture away. <laughs> we, can, we can say that. It's not this side of the rapture because uh, it's called a mystery. It's a mystery. With, the church is a mystery. So there are no specific prophecies given for the church. There were some that were fulfilled in the church age, but they weren't prophecies given specifically for the church, about the church. It was, the church was a mystery. So God, so the Lord could present the kingdom and the kingdom be refused by the Jews. Okay, But he did make promises, didn't he? Is he going to fulfill them? Absolutely. The thousand year reign of Christ. Absolutely. He's going to fulfill those. But some of those things were partially fulfilled from time to time in the history of, of Israel. Now this chart is what, what I've put together over the course of about 40 years of studying it, trying to figure out how does this fit and how does that fit, and where do these things all come together. And as mentioned, the book there has is, is got the, the specifics of why the, that these things are put in this chart in this way. Now I think we are looking down at the time here of the seven bowl judgments just before the second advent. But what is what is leading up to it? Chapter 33 and 34 is calling out to Israel. 35 and 6 are judgments. 37 is going to be the dry bones passage, which is a picture of Israel coming back into the land. But they don't yet have the breath breathed into them to give them life because they've come back in unbelief. Some people have said that they're back in unbelief so it doesn't count. And yet we're going to find in these chapters that when God brings them back this time, they're never to be dispersed again. So no, they're not going to be run out of Israel. Hey, we can say that. How are they going to stay there? I don't know. What I do know that there's a supernatural hand that protects them and I think the world's getting ready to see it once again. Uh, <clears throat> they're just trying to drag us in. You notice how the world has got the United States and Israel aligned real well because they hate us both. Okay, they're, You're going to try to figure out how to get rid of both of us and look for justification to do it, at least in their own eyes. Now, the first six verses of this Ezekiel 33 is about the watchman and the responsibility of the watchman. And there's a, to be a watchman appointed in Israel, and this watchman is supposed to do just that. He's supposed to watch. He's supposed to look for threats. He's supposed to look for invading armies. And they had different watchmen assigned to each of the different tribes and different areas of those tribes. So they were to appoint a watchman. If the watchman saw something coming, he better tell everybody. If not, he bears the guilt. If he tells you and you don't do anything about it, you bear the guilt. So he tells us real fast, it's, a, it's an accountability issue. Now, in verses 7 to 9, we covered last week, is Ezekiel is pointed as a watchman. Okay? Now, in chapter 3, verse 17, he was appointed as a watchman. And there's been a whole lot transpire over these last 30 chapters of scripture. But now it kind of takes us back to when he was appointed a watchman the first time. And it says, okay, now, Ezekiel, you as a watchman, this is what has to happen. I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. 
So you will hear the message from my mouth and give them warning from me. He says, when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn him, the wicked from his way, the wicked man will die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require from your hand. If you know what to say and don't say it, he says, you're responsible. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he'll die in his iniquity. But you've delivered your life. Okay? You're not responsible for it. That's what he is saying. So what is our job? What was the job in Israel? Because that's direct interpretation. These, this was given to Israel by direct interpretation. The application to us is, is that we as Christians should be watchmen. And we should be willing to tell everybody. This is a gospel message. Take the gospel to the whole planet. Now, where we left off, 33.10. Now, as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we're rotting away in them. How then can we survive? It's kind of like, how then should we live? <laughs> what are we going to do about it? This is, the, okay, say to the house of Israel, you're rotting away in your sins. And they're going to say, well, how are, we, how are we going to survive? Now say to them, say to the house of Israel, that is context, that is interpretation, that is grammatical accuracy. Say to the house of Israel, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Does that sound familiar? 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Now see, this is, this is a God of love. It's a God of compassion, slow to anger, full of, full of loving kindness. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then do you, will you die, O house of Israel? See, this is stated in a universal sense, the wicked man, but then it's applied directly to Israel because in Israel they're unbelievers. He said, why don't you turn around? That's, that's his, his, his thrust. He says, and you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens. Now, th this is where the translators got a little fancy, and it, it says literally in the Hebrew, the sons of your people, Menaam, the sons of your people. The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day he turns from his wickedness. Now, isn't this all about volitional decisions that people are making right here? He says, whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. Now see, the Jews thought they were righteous enough. They've had that throughout their history. And that's when Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you don't have any eternal life. And they're going, how can our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Because they lived, in a sense, a righteous life, following the law, adding stuff to the law and following that. So they lived what would be viewed as a righteous life. <clears throat> but he says, 
When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness that he commits iniquity. He's, see, he's good enough to just do a few iniquitous things. Iniquity means to take the truth and twist it to your own ends. Okay, Like just tell partial truths, half-truths, just almost truths. And <clears throat> he says, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his which he has committed, he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die. And I mentioned last week this... You shall surely die as dying you shall die. It's the same construction we saw in the garden when the Lord told Adam, don't eat from the tree because in the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. Now, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. In other words, he's been a sinner, he's been wicked, he's in line for discipline and even death, but if he changes, the Lord, that's what the Lord is looking for. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he will surely live. He won't die. In other words, he's saying this man won't die the sin unto death. None of his sins which he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness, and it says, interestingly enough, living he shall live. Instead of dying, he shall die. Okay, Live a righteous life. Living, you shall live. A real life, you'll really know what it is like. You'll embrace it. Now, <clears throat> Ezekiel has a message for all of humanity concerning righteousness. This is interesting because some people say that what Paul writes in Romans 3, 4, and 5 was Paul thinking that up, that it didn't come from the Old Testament. Well, here's where it comes from. Okay? It's talking about there's a righteousness that you have to have that you can't earn or do or make. It has to be given to you. Okay? Called justification by faith. Now, the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked since he wants everybody to be saved. 1 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9, it's not his will that any perish, but all be saved and come to a full knowledge of the truth. It's not the word bulomai that's will, which means a declared statement. It's thelo. It's not his desire. He doesn't want anybody to, to die in sin and go to hell. He doesn't want that to happen. But people have volition, and having that volition, they have the accountability for the decisions they make. Even though a believer has an imputed righteousness. Now, see, here is uh, see that reference, Genesis 15, 6. This is the importance of context. How did Abraham get his righteousness? Which is Paul's argument in Romans 3, 4, and 5. It says, And Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him righteousness. Okay? When we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are imputed with his righteousness. That's the righteousness that we want. That's the one that gets us into heaven. That's the one that has overcome the penalty for sin. If he does not live righteously, okay, even <clears throat> though a believer has an imputed righteousness, because I've run into some believers that just live like a devil. I'm sure you have too over the course of your, your existence. And what's going to happen to them? Do they lose heaven? Not according to the Bible. 
because he's faithful even if we are faithless. So they don't lose that. But what do they get, get in line for? Discipline. They can have a hell on earth right now that comes as a result of, of discipline from God. So <clears throat> if he doesn't live righteously, he'll receive discipline since he's acting like a wicked man. Okay? Believers can act like wicked men. Got any examples? Not personally from your own life's name, but maybe biblically. <clears throat> Seems like I ran into one. His name was David. He was a king. He did all the evil, wicked, mean, and nasty stuff you could put into one life. Okay? <laughs> and he was called a man after God's own heart. How'd that happen? He already had the imputed righteousness. We know that. We saw him slay giants. We know he did. But the sin nature took hold of him is what happened. And did David end up disciplined for it? Yes. Turned inside out every which way but loose. Pursued by pursued by his own kids. So... <clears throat> If a wicked man, on the other hand, turns from his wickedness, the Lord will preserve him from discipline. Okay? So make the, make the change. That's, that's what Ezekiel is telling Israel. But he still needs to believe after the pattern of Abraham. He needs to be a believer. See, there are, there are wicked men who are not believers. And he's saying if they start acting with some honor... I'll, I'll honor that. The Lord will respond to people who live an honorable life even if they're not believers. They're not getting into heaven by their honorable life, but he will respond and he'll take back that discipline off. But even a believer, if they don't make the changes, they die what's called the sin unto death, First John chapter 3. <clears throat> Every human being is expected to act righteously and knows the basics of what is, inspect, uh, is expected. This is Romans 2.14. This is a, be- a beautiful passage written by Paul. When the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. What is that? Have honor, respect for other people. These not having the law are the law to themselves. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So he's laying the foundation there for the fact that everybody knows they're a sinner. Even the Gentiles. And that's one of the arguments that you run into now. We'll hear people that don't know anything about the Mosaic Law. How could they know they're a sinner? And if they don't know they're a sinner, why do they need a Savior? And here's your verse. Go back to Romans 1, also, which says they're without excuse because the heavens declare the glory of God and he's known by what he's made. Now, truth and justice in verse 17. Yet you, your fellow citizens, again the Hebrew is sons of your people, say, the way of the Lord is not right. Do they still do this? Do we have Jews in the middle of the 
Capitol building rotunda protesting and saying that we need to give concessions to Hamas and the Palestinians. Today, they are getting locked up for, for protest without permits, I guess. If they'd have paid the money, it would have been fine. I don't know the way people think anymore. <clears throat> but he says, okay, the sons of your people say the way of the Lord is not right. When it is there, the sons of your people, when it's their own way that is not right. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he, the righteous, shall die in it, his iniquity. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and practice justice and righteousness, he will live by them. He'll live by this justice and righteousness. And yet you say the way of the Lord is not right. Now see, this is the Jews that are saying this in the time of Ezekiel, and they're in exile. The way of the Lord is not right. And Ezekiel's trying to say, yes, it is. You've departed from it all along. It's why you're here. O house of Israel, I, this is the Lord, will judge each of you according to his ways. So Israel better look out. Didn't he write that somewhere else? Like the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and the joints of the marrow, and it's a judge of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Guess where the writer of Hebrews may have got that? He got it from the Holy Spirit, but he wasn't void of knowledge of the Old Testament. Now, the Lord, though, has made it clear he is the truth and not man. Man has a tendency to do this whenever they go away from the Lord, which is where the world is right now. When they go away from the Lord, then, then what do they do? They make their own laws. They don't like the way of the Lord. That's why you have people like Klaus Schwab that wants to write a new Bible that people can live by. <sighs> Give it your best shot, Charles. I hope I hope it <laughs> consumes you while you're trying to write this thing. Multiple times, the Lord has warned again, doing against doing what is right in one's own eyes. Multiple times, you find it in Proverbs. You find it the um, passage not even here in Joshua. Each man. Did what was right in his own eyes. Okay? And it gets people in trouble. Every time that's the case. The command to Israel and all of us. Is to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Interesting where you find this. And you looked up the word eyes. And you go well he says this all over the place. And it said multiple times. Before we get to the time of Ezekiel. In the 6th century B.C., it said in Proverbs by Solomon. It said in, in the Mosaic Law and Deuteronomy. And now, Deuteronomy 21.9, he says, So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. That's what we're called to do, not what is right in our own eyes. Now, <clears throat> there's some prophecies fulfilled here. In verse 21 and 22. Now it came about in the twelfth year of our exile. 
on the fifth of the tenth month. Now, Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians in 598 B.C. We know when that happened. So this is in December, January of 586, 585 B.C. That's where we get the 70 years of, of Babylonian captivity. They were conquered, but they weren't yet hauled off. And it's so interesting because we know these things happen because we even have Babylonian records that shows the inventory of Solomon's temple and the gold shields that he had and all this stuff, and they carried it off to Babylon when they took put these people in exile. So we have external sources that says this is historical fact. Okay? Some people say, well, the Bible's all mythology and all that, and I beg to differ with them. There is historical uh, evidence. This is about uh, three months, if we put this thing together, after the fall of Jerusalem. Okay, came about in the twelfth year of our exile, on the fifth of the tenth month, that the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been taken. Jerusalem, the city is Jerusalem. And now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came. Here's a prophet. The Lord's getting ready to use him. And he said, the hand of the Lord. He said, I, I knew something was going on. And he opened my mouth at the time they came to me in the morning. The refugees came to me at the morning. So my mouth was open and I was no longer speechless. Now an interesting footnote here. They wouldn't listen to Ezekiel. So God shut Ezekiel's mouth for seven and a half years. That's found in chapter 3, verse 24 to 27. They shut his mouth. So he had all this information to write down, but he hadn't been talking to people. And then the refugees came to him because at the right time, Ezekiel opens his mouth with, with prophecies. So what are some of the prophecies surrounding this discourse? And the first one, and you can look there if you want, Ezekiel 3. Ezekiel will be muted by the Lord because the Jews didn't want to hear any prophecy. Now how about that? Do we have anybody like that today? You know, we were talking about that at lunch today. People just don't want to hear. They don't want to listen. You know, they've got their own ideas. Just leave me alone so I can watch my football this weekend. Don't don't interfere with my football because that's more important than anything else going on in the world today. So just leave me alone. Ezekiel 3.22. The hand of the Lord was upon me. What did we just read? <laughs> and the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening. Okay, So the hand of the Lord was upon him. Chapter 3. And then he took it away. And then he felt it on him the evening before. And the refugees showed up the next morning. And he said to me, get up, go out to the plain, there I'll speak with you. So I got up and I went out to the plain. And behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there. Like the glory I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. And the Spirit then entered me and made me stand on my feet. That's important for what's coming up in chapter 37. Because the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was said to be upon people. But a few people have said to fill. 
Bezalel and Aholiab, the two workers on the tabernacle. They were said to be filled. Joshua was said to be filled. And here it says, here it says, Oh, the Spirit entered me and made me stand on my feet. And he spoke with me and he said to me, Go shut yourself up in the house. <laughs> now see, he just brought him out of the house, right? <laughs> Brings him out to the plane, stands him up there. Holy Spirit goes in and he says, Go back to the house. Sounds like Moses in the mountain, doesn't it? Moses, come up here and see me. Moses goes up there. He says, now I want you to go back down and tell these people to do, and then come back. And he's up and down the mountain three or four times. Okay? He says, as for you, son of man, they're going to put ropes on you and bind you with them so you cannot go out among them. Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so you'll be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them. Because they're a rebellious house. They don't want to hear from you, so I'm going to fix it where you can't talk to them. Because Ezekiel probably wanted to talk to them. It's about like any, any mouthpiece. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth, and you'll say to them, Thus says the Lord God. <laughs> Guess what the first words out of his mouth were after seven and a half years of not speaking? Thus says the Lord God. He who hears, let him hear. Sounds like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who refuses, let him refuse. They're a rebellious house. Okay. So Ezekiel, you go out. When I say talk, you talk. Thus says the Lord God. Some are going to listen, some aren't. And it's their responsibility. It also says in Ezekiel 24 that Ezekiel's wife would die. In verse 15, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, I'm about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. He's talking there about his wife is what most commentators believe it had happened. But you shall not mourn. It had to be somebody close. And shall not weep. And your tears shall not come. You talk about a tough assignment. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. The Jews had a kind of formal mourning time. And he says, don't do that. I'm going to take her. I'm going to take her suddenly. And you can't cry. Bind on your turban. Put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your mustache. And do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things are that you mean for us? And I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes and the delight of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword. Okay? Israel, you're in trouble. You will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your heads, your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn and you will not weep. But you'll rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Thus Ezekiel will be assigned to you. According that he has done all he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know 
that I am the Lord God. But as for you, son of man, will it not be on that day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes and their hearts to delight their sons and their daughters, on that day that he who escapes will come to you with information to your ears. On that day your mouth will be opened to him who escaped, and you'll speak and be mute no longer. You'll be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. See, there are times that the Lord has extended circumstances for us to endure. The Jews have had that. We've had it. If we haven't had it personally, we know people that have. We know what it is, and it's kind of like, Lord knows. And how are you going to handle it? It doesn't mean you don't weep over these things. It's obvious that we're called to weep. Joseph wept over his, his father. I mean, there's no problem to, to mourn and to grieve. But there's sometimes, he said, there's some things more, more important. And he had things for Ezekiel to endure. It's, it's amazing some of the stuff he told the prophets to do. <laughs> Take all your clothes off and walk through the streets for three years. Yeah, right. <laughs> anyway, Israel is supposed to be a wasteland. Okay, where are they? In exile. Okay, Ezekiel 33:23. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, those who live in these waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, yet he possessed the land. So to us who are many, the land has been given as a possession. Think, well, Abraham's gone. We're left. It's a wasteland, but we'll take it. Therefore say to the ones living in the waste places of Israel, because what has happened? The Babylonians have carried off all the goodies of Solomon's temple. They've laid waste to the land. Thus says the Lord God, you eat meat with the blood in it. Lift up your eyes to the idols as you shed blood. Should you then possess the land? First question he asked them. You're violating my commandments. You're eating meat with blood in it, which is the way that meat was offered to idols. It was offered raw. And I've been around idol worship in India, and India is an assault on your senses. And it is assault, especially on the sense of smell. Mixed in with rotting meat, incense, trying to cover it up, and diesel fumes from places that cars that need need fixed and repaired, you have a real mix of aromas. In verse 26, he says, You who are the ones living in the waste places of Israel, rely on your sword. You commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Why should you then possess the land? They're eating raw meat, which is a violation of specific parts of the law, but that indicates they're worshiping other gods. Are they violating the Ten Commandments? Yeah. And if you're defiling your neighbor's wife, okay, you're violating the, the, the Ten Commandments. He says, so why should I bless you and give you anything? Is the question he's asking him. Thus you, Ezekiel, shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God as I live, Surely those who are in the waste places will fall by the sword. And whoever is in the open I will give to the beast to be devoured. And those who are in the strongholds and the caves will die of pestilence. 
Okay, So some of them got carried off into Babylon, as we know, but some of them on the outskirts, out in the waste places, they died a slow death. And I will make the land a desolation and a waste, and the pride of her power will cease, and the mountains of Israel will be desolate. See that mountains of Israel thing there? We're going to see... <laughs> We're going to see the Lord talking to the mountains here in one of these chapters coming up. Oh, mountains of Israel. Who's he talking? He's talking to the land is who he's talking to. Now, the Lord can do that and not be crazy. Okay? The rest of us try to do that, and we're kind of bubble off plum. But we, we he, he talks to them. And why, why is he talking to the mountains? Because nobody else will listen. <laughs> Why is he talking to the rocks? They, they got their heart of hearing. And I will make the land a desolation and a waste. The pride of her power will cease. Then they will know that I am the Lord. When I make the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations which they have committed. Now this prophecy wasn't totally fulfilled until 70 A.D. See, this is a prophecy given in the age of Israel, and its fulfillment happened in 70 A.D. And they were gone. This is a prelude to what's coming up in the next two chapters that talks about them being dispersed into all the lands of the earth and then being brought back from all the nations of the earth. So again, the root of the problem is the abuse of grace. It's kind of interesting thing people find out about grace and the grace of God, and the next thing you know, they start abusing it. How far can I go? Just like little kids. You know, don't get on, don't step outside this yard, and you'll find them right on the edge of that yard. They want to know what their boundaries are. And then if they step out and, and they smile and go hee hee, and you laugh back at them, and they don't get disciplined, they think, well, I can do it again. And so they get a little farther out, a little farther out. And that's what happens. That's how grace gets abused. We did a study in the last couple of years of when grace runs out. You know, God is slow to anger, full of loving kindness. But there's a time when grace runs out. It happened at the flood in Genesis 6. It happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. It happened to the northern kingdom that we find in 721 B.C. into the southern kingdom in 586. So yeah, there's a time God's grace runs out. And uh, we're getting close to it again. Again, the root of the problem is the abuse of grace. They're specifically in violation of two commands the Lord has given. Worshiping idols with raw meat and violating the marriage bond. And since they're in the waste places... They probably realize, there's probably reason they can continue in sin unnoticed. Okay? You know, if we're out here and nobody sees us, and we're not living around anybody, and we're just kind of eking by from day to day, then, then God's not paying attention to us. Well, they, they don't know much theology. David said, where can I go to get away from you? I can go to the highest mountain, you're there. I go to the deepest cave, you're there. I could go to the depths of the ocean, you're there. You're anywhere I go. And this is a, just a, a statement of that. They think they can get away. 
In Leviticus 26, they were warned about this. Leviticus 26 describes five cycles of discipline that are promised for Israel. Now, they are not promised for everybody. So, not everybody has that that grace. But the Lord said, you're Israel, the apple of my eye. I'm going to give you warnings. And the first cycle, he says, these things are going to happen. And if you turn from your evil ways, I'm going to remove the discipline. If you don't, we're going in the second cycle. And everything intensifies. And it gets worse. Till the fifth cycle of discipline, they're actually, their military is destroyed. They're scattered and everything else. And that's happened more than once in the history of Israel. Ezekiel will be vindicated. As for you, son of man... The sons of your people who talk about you by the walls and in the doorways of the houses, they speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now and hear what the message is which comes forth from the Lord. And your fellow citizens come to you as people come and sit before you as my people and hear your words, but, but your fellow citizens do not do them. Okay? That's sometimes what people do, isn't it? They come hear the message, and then when they go out the doors, they leave the message where they heard it. They don't take it with them. It's what James wrote about in the first chapter, in the first book written in the New Testament. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer who deceives himself. Take what you, what you know, take it with you, make it a part of you, and, and make it who you are. He says, they hear, but they don't do them. For they do the lustful desires expressed by their mouth. And their heart goes after their gain. Uh, How can they they add to the things they have? And that's what they go for. And behold, you are to them like a sensual song. Oh, Ezekiel, your voice is so soothing and pleasing. And he says, you're like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they don't practice them. Hmm. So when it comes to pass, and it surely will, they will know their prophet has been in their midst. He is doing this for Ezekiel because Ezekiel is his mouthpiece and he's doing things so people will know that Ezekiel Ezekiel was a true prophet. Now the sons of Israel follow Ezekiel as though he were a cult leader. Okay, That's not what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to get the word from the Lord and then go practice it. And it's not what they were doing. His words were soothing in their presentation but did not stick to their souls. Where it'd do him some good. In other words, he kind of had a golden throat. That's who he was. Quite a great orator. Now, <clears throat> this kind of warms us up for the things that are coming. Next chapter, he's going to address the watchmen. The watchmen, or the shepherds rather, the, the shepherds have to do with the leaders of a nation. The leaders of a nation are... Uh, the the shepherds over the group and in Israel they were they were shepherd but they were divided up by the heads of the tribes heads of all the way down to ten people that's how that how they were set up 
And he's saying the shepherds, the ones that are supposed to care for people and watch out for people, they're not doing their job. Now, there are applications to every nation that ever existed. Jeremiah 18 tells us about such things as that. But these were specifically given for Israel. And 35 36 is going to be about Edom. Now, uh, Edom... Um, Edom, you might remember, is at the south end of the Dead Sea. Now, these places are all coming into play right now. This little bitty strip over here, we know what that is, don't we? Yeah, that, that part of the map became familiar to people. It's, what, six miles wide and 20 miles long? Not very big at all. Got way too many people in it. Um, but you find it interesting that, that these people are, are uh, so anti-Semitic. It's just built into them. It's, and anti-Semitic is not really a good word. And the reason it's not a good word is because Semitic comes, means it comes from the line of Shem. The three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It means that they, they, it is a Shemitic, to be uh, clear, anti-Shemitic, because a lot of the people that they're fighting over there are Semitic. Okay? They come out of the, of, of the line of Shem. There are some Hamites that are basically in North Africa and those, those areas where the Hamitic groups went. And the Japhethites went off up to the north primarily from the Table of Nations in, in Genesis 10. But they're anti-Jew. They're anti-sons of Abraham. Now, how deep did that get over the years? Uh, it's truly amazing to see that small a number of people in comparison to the world. The hatred, absolute, supernatural, demonic hatred of people who are descendants of Abraham. It's hard to even fathom or imagine. I've seen hatred different times in my life. I've never seen anything like what is going on right now? What now? Some of the Palestinians are Christians, yeah. Some of them have been converted. Some of them are Christians. But most of them are not living in the Gaza Strip. Okay. <clears throat> they're, they're scattered throughout Israel. And uh, I know people that are living over there that say most there's a lot of Palestinians that are Christians. And they're Christians. They're good Christians. They're better Jews than, than the Jews should be. <laughs> the, the, the Jews don't like Christians. So it's kind of like uh, coming back on them. It's like everything is coming together and, and all of the, the bias and the hatred and everything else in the world at one time. Because it's risen up uh, over the centuries. Martin Luther after he walked out of the monastery and put his theses on the Wittenberg door and led the, led the Reformation, he decided he was going to go to the Jews and evangelize them. And so he went to the Jews. He thought, hey, I've got the message. Your Messiah's arrived and all this. And he was so excited and he went to do this and they rejected Martin Luther. 
The Jews said, no, our Messiah didn't arrive. He didn't come at all. And then Luther reacted. And Luther became so anti-Semitic that some of the stuff he wrote about them were they were subhuman. They weren't even really people. And he, sadly, was the most quoted theologian by Hitler in World War II. Because he was so anti-Jew. And he wanted them exterminated. Now, do you think the devil wants them exterminated? That's what this is all about. Because we look at all the politics going on, and it's not about the politics. It's about the spiritual battle that is going on. Because, as I mentioned earlier about prophecy... Not one stroke of the law will pass until it's all been fulfilled. Jesus said, I'll fulfill every bit of it. Every single part of it will be fulfilled. What has not yet been fulfilled? Israel and their land. Because even though they're back in the land, they don't have all the land that was promised to them. See, that's a partial fulfillment of a prophecy. Because it goes from the Euphrates River and it goes to the river of Egypt. So here is a chunk of land the Jews have never possessed in their entire entire history. Now he promised it to Abraham, and he actually gave the boundaries. So God's put his character on the line, his omniscience on the line, his omnipotence. He's put everything on the line, and he's wrapped it up. And this bunch of people who have been so ungrateful over the course of the centuries. You, you look at Israel, I hear people say, well... The age of Israel was the age of the law, and the church is the age of grace. Now, I think the age of Israel was the age of grace. Because this is about as knuckle-headed a bunch of people as you could ever assemble. And he said, I'm going I'm to keep them together, and I'm going to make them a great nation. One of these days. And whenever they finally get to that point, you know, when, when, when the 144,000 are saved at the uh, outset of the, the tribulation... I think they get saved real fast. And you can see here the 144K on the chart that's there. Well, what what happens? The rapture happens. When the rapture happens, the restrainer is taken out of the way, which I believe is the indwelling Holy Spirit that's found in the, the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is gone. There's the, the restrainer is gone in a sense. The Holy Spirit is still there because it's the age of Israel and because people can still get saved. Okay? So how are they going to understand the gospel without the Spirit? The Spirit is still alive and well on planet Earth. He didn't leave and abandon it. But he works like he did in the age of Israel. He's upon people instead of in people. And so right after the, the rapture of the church... Then you have some things start to happen. And as I mentioned last week, Jews think topically. Greeks think chronologically. Now we all think chronologically to a degree, but Jews tend to give the bottom line and then explain it. Greeks tend to give all the explanation and then the bottom line. That's why we call it the bottom line. Okay? <clears throat> but they give a summary and they will write in topics. And inside that topic, you'll find a chronological sequence that's laid out. Like Revelation 14, the first angel, the second angel, the third angel, 
chronological sequence talking about three angels that will appear at some time during the, during the tribulation. The first angel comes through and says, gives the gospel to the entire world. Since God won't leave his word void, I think that happens, angel one, right after the rapture. Maybe while everybody's still looking up. It wouldn't surprise me one bit. And he gives the gospel to the whole world. Everybody hears it. And out of that, I think there's some Jews start getting saved, the 144,000 male virgin Jews. They start getting saved. Moses and Elijah appear on the scene. That's the two blue guys here, the blue band crew right here. That's the two blue blue guys. And they go out into the desert south of Jerusalem, and, and they shut up the skies for three and a half years. Okay? And everybody tries to kill them. Nobody can kill them. There's a supernatural hand until the Antichrist kills them, the midway point of the tribulation. Only they're not really dead. They just lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and then the whole world watches them being taken back to the mothership. I'm sure they've already got that one worked out. And then these two guys, the two guys in red, down there at the bottom, the little funny-looking guys, that's the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land. That's the Antichrist and the false prophet. Revelation 13 describes them. So here we have a sequence of events given up to chapter 6 where the seal judgments are open in chapter 6. Chapter 7 tells us what's going to happen with the 144,000. Chapter 8 and 9 are the trumpet judgments. And that happens about three years into the trib because it says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, what is the hour? Earlier on in Revelation 2.10 or 3.10, it says, I will deliver you from the hour of testing that is coming on the whole earth. It's 3.10. Huh. What is the hour of testing? It's the seven-year tribulational period. So when there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour, no more seals being broken open, no trumpets blowing, and then the trumpets start blowing. And when these trumpets start blowing halfway through the about the start of the third year, then what happens is uh, there's dramatic judgments poured out on all mankind. Then the Looks like that's when the Antichrist takes his seat in the temple, proclaims himself to be a god. He's head of the European Union, if you will, that was compri- will be comprised then of ten nations. He'll defeat three of them on his rise to power. He will establish an eighth. That's actually taught in Daniel and Revelation 17. So you have multiple witnesses there. And then right there, uh, Satan gets cast out of heaven. Some say, what's he doing in heaven? He's accusing us. He's trying to find some way to say, God, you're wrong. So that he can claim victory. That's, that's what he's trying to do. And it says there's war in heaven between Michael and his angels, and the devil and his angels, and he gets cast out of heaven to the earth. Now when he ends up on the earth, he indwells the Antichrist. Okay? So he now, the Antichrist is, is not just a powerful character all of his own. He's got, the Satan, got Satan inside of him to work. 
and the false prophet is authenticating him to the world. Follow this guy. Oh, by the way, take the mark. Oh, what was the second angel? The second angel said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Two fallens, two Babylons. One in 17, one in 18. So, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Third angel, don't take the mark of the beast. I think they, this is my conjecture. First angel comes right after the, the rapture. Second angel comes right on the first day anniversary of the rapture. Kind of a reminder. <laughs> it just st- strikes me as that might work. Well, I, I can't document that. I don't have a verse that goes with it. But that's just kind of my gut feeling. And the third angel comes on the second anniversary of the rapture. And he says, don't take the mark. So it kind of gives us some idea of what is happening and the fact that it's going to take a while for the Antichrist to rise to power, consolidate his kingdom, and start putting everything together. And by the way, he doesn't control the world. He claims he does, but he doesn't. Because he's going to make everyone take it. I guess he thinks he's now president of the United Nations. And so he makes an executive order. And said everybody's going to have to have this. And some of them are going to say. Not just the Christians who are going to die because of it. I'm not too sure that Russia. And the atheistic nations are going to partake of that. I'm not real sure that the Muslim nations would partake of it either. Because he's taken his seat in the temple, proclaimed himself to be a god, and they worship no god but Allah. No god but Allah. So they're not going to worship me. You can you can be your own prophet here. They're they're not going to worship him. So anyway, that's kind of what happens. I believe that's when the covenant. It's a seven-year covenant is signed, but it's about halfway through the trib when it's signed. After he has risen to power, taken his seat in the temple, proclaimed himself to be a god, he signs this covenant because Daniel 11 says he's trying to alter the times and the seasons. So, why would he... he, Okay, guys, uh, look, we can only go three and a half years because Jesus is going to come back at the end of that and kill me (laughs) and throw me in the lake of fire. He knows the prophecies, but he's trying to upset those so that something Jesus said doesn't happen. That's the whole thrust of the angelic conflict. He has to try and prove God wrong somewhere. And, um, of course, we don't believe he will. But that's his, that's his uh, attempt at, uh, I will be like the Most High. Hmm. Oh, how's he going to do that? Bring God down. He's not going to evolve to Godhood. He wants to get God to fall from Godhood. Okay? Anyway, I kind of got sidetracked, but it's always fun to get sidetracked. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day. Once again, what a day we live in. Father, we thank you for it. I pray, Father, we would not be alarmed. I pray that we would be fascinated. I pray that we would be motivated. To go out and, and uh, speak the truth to power. To speak the truth to falsehood and lies. I pray, Father, that we have wisdom to know how to do it, how to go about it. But also the courage 
to do it whenever we know it's right. Father, we give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.